This is The Stateless Man for the pursuit of individual liberty beyond arbitrary borders, oppressive governments, and myths of national obligations. If you value liberty and are willing to migrate and vote with your feet, you've come to the right place. Welcome back to another episode of The Stateless Man, and I'm just so pleased to be broadcasting from Pompano Beach. And uh, a lot has been going on with the, the website, thestatelessman.com, and through the Facebook page. It's just facebook.com forward slash thestatelessman. Uh, we have a sponsor that is the International TEFL Academy. Go to radioita.com if you want to get on the road to teaching abroad. I've written about it. Uh, we've got additional articles on the site about it. Just check them out, radioita.com, and they have a $50 discount on any program if you want to get uh, mentoring or certification as a TOEFL certified teacher. Now, I'm just really excited about the range of guests. I mean, I, I don't like to, to use hyperbole, but every week seems to just have more inspiring guests than the last. And we have a jam-packed show with four different uh, guests lined up. Uh, we're going to be speaking with the Solitary Wanderer, a lady who's a specialist on traveling and has a wonderful website about how to travel as a woman alone. We're then discussing sovereignty or secessionist movements around the world. And we're going to have an expert on Quebec, Catalonia, and Hawaii. Uh, many people aren't aware that Hawaii is basically an occupied territory, but like Puerto Rico. But there's, uh, I'm, I'm not an expert on that, but we're going to have a man on who is. And then finally, one of the key themes of this show, which is the celebration of freedom of movement, of taking the initiative to find freedom in your life, and particularly with, with freedom of movement, and we're going to have Jacob Hornberger, who was an inspiration of mine. He is the president and founder of the Future of Freedom Foundation, FFF.org. And we'll be discussing the latest digital ebook from them, uh, which is on open immigration and free trade. Uh, but first up, we have a guest. Her name is Alea Tabaklawan. Now, she is the solitary wanderer. That's solitarywanderer.com. And I first shared a link of hers regarding why you should date women who've traveled. What was, I think it was why you should date women who've traveled, which got plenty of, tra of, of traction. And my guess is, considering that it got something like 50,000 Facebook likes, it must have something like half a million hits. Enormous traffic. So it just shows that people have responded to what she's had to say. And I wanted to have her on too because the case of women is is a, is a unique one when it comes to travel and expatriation. That, in particular, security is a challenge, and we're going to address that with her. So, Alea, I'm sorry if I butchered your name. Uh, please help me with that one, and thanks for coming on the Stateless Man. Thank you for inviting me, Fergus. Uh, yeah, my last name is Tabuklaon. Tabuklaon, excellent. Yeah, right. Yeah. Right, and how did you get started writing? The Solitary Wanderer, or just, yeah, solitarywanderer.com is the website, and you can go to Facebook page of The Stateless Man to check that one out. Mm -hmm. uh, well, because I've always been traveling alone. Uh, I was 11 when I started traveling solo, mm. so when I was thinking of a name for my blog, I naturally thought about what I usually do when I travel. Well, slow down. You were 11? Yeah, yeah, I was 11 when I started traveling by myself. I mean, I will admit that I went hitchhiking when I was about that age, but that is <laughs> intense. 
<laughs> yeah, I mean, at that time, maybe uh, like 20 years ago or something, Yeah, I believe that people are generally kind. They and are. Yeah, yeah. Back before then, when there were no uh, crimes being reported online, I felt very much safe traveling by myself. Right. And, yeah, that's a good question. You have an accident, and you are currently in India, as far as I know. Uh, where, where did you start your traveling? Uh, when, in India? No, just when you were 11. No, just domestically in the Philippines, within the Philippines. Okay, but, you're, so, but, you, but you've been traveling all over since then, and you are in India right now. Uh, I just came back from India two weeks ago. Okay, I see. Because I, I posted an image of yours from the Taj Mahal. Mm-hmm. And yes. let's get let's get right to the the big concern then. I mean, you went like I said at, at at 11 years old you started traveling. But many people would just say firstly, are you not lonely? But let's let's get to that question later. How how do you overcome this? And I'll I'll bring up the article that you you've written on this one about tips for traveling safely. Uh mm-hmm. so you've written on this. What are you, what are your pieces of advice and then we can get on to whether you've struggle with this, whether you've been robbed at any point along the way? Um, those tips that I've written, I've actually used them personally, every single one of it. And um, I haven't been robbed, but I've experienced uh, sexual harassment, for example, from from fellow travelers, from bus drivers, conductors, and everything. Right. And that's actually I... the main problem of solo female travelers when they travel. Sexual harassment is the biggest problem? Yes, yes. Um, because when uh, when you travel by yourself, uh, people would think you're fair game. That you know mm. you're open to sexual liaisons wherever you go. Yeah. Yeah, but actually, um, since I've been traveling by myself since eleven and uh, until now, I never felt unsafe except in India. Mm. Yeah, it's so different there when it comes to women travelers. I'm 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 getting a little bit of feedback on this net connection. I'm not sure what the what the problem is, but we'll examine that during the break. In the list you say first, let someone know where you're going. That seems like a, a good idea. I will say that I've violated all of these all of these rules in my own travels, but I guess it's okay for a man. So <laughs> let someone know where you're going. I'm just no one knows where I'm going. I don't even know where I am sometimes. Anyway, so distribute your money and your belongings. Uh read up read up on the place you're visiting. Respect the mm-hmm. culture you're in and dress appropriately. Hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. Practice protective <laughs> behaviors. And okay, that's that's the list. I think it was six or five things. Five safety tips. Five. Yeah. Yeah. Right. You so you say people yeah they assume you, that you're sexually available even though you you uh, may not be. So let you let someone know where you're going. And has this list refined itself over time? Uh. uh actually, yes. Because uh, actually. Like you, I also am not used to letting people know about uh, where I am. Do mm. um, you remember the case of uh, American uh, Alex Zimmerman, I think, a couple of weeks ago? Um, her family didn't hear from her for a week or so. I did hear then, about that, yeah. And she was just traveling, and they were sending the FBI after her or something like that. So, I mean, you know, in this age of uh, mobile technology and uh, internet, there's no reason why you can't tell your family where you are. Mm. Right, we are approaching the break. We're speaking with, let me get the, let me get this right. <laughs> Alea Tabuklon. And, uh, but stay with us. She's, she's from solitarywanderer.com. Uh, this is the stateless man. 
website is a major doorway to reach new clients. A dynamic web presence will generate you more leads and business. AMTG Solutions offers premium web design and digital media services for today's small businesses and entrepreneurs. Visit our website at amtgs.com or email Tony at info at amtgs.com and let's get the ball rolling. This is the Stateless Man pursuing liberty beyond borders, and it's my pleasure to be back with you. If you want to uh, call in, it is 1-888-741-7472. That's 1-888-741-7472. And you can have a question for this lady, the Solitary Wanderer from SolitaryWanderer.com. We're discussing the five safety tips she has for women traveling, uh, which are let someone know where you're going, distribute your money and your belongings, read up on the place before visiting, uh, for any security issues, uh, respect the culture you're in and dress appropriately, and then practice pre- protective behaviors. That article is available on facebook.com forward slash the stateless man and the links through to her site, which is solitarywanderer.com. Now, there was also, well, let, let us lead into this. There was sure another article which got great traction about why you should date a traveling lady. Yeah, would you want to tell us your, perhaps your favorite places that you've visited over the years? My favorite is uh, Italy and Belgium uh, yeah. when I went there last year, yes. It was winter when I was there. And, uh, well, I admit that I didn't see a lot of it during winter, but when I came back at spring, it was really wonderful. Right. Yeah, but there are also a lot of wonderful places, uh, countries here in Asia that I like coming back to, like um, Ho Chi Minh City in uh, Vietnam and um, uh, Bangkok in Thailand. And where did you learn to write English so well? Um, in the Philippines, we were taught English when we were very young. Actually, for a lot of uh, educated people here, English is their first language. I see, I see. No, because someone else was commenting just how well your articles are written, and that's, I imagine, helped uh, promote it. Now, you did write this article about, which is, I imagine, is this the most popular article on your website about why to date uh, a traveling <laughs> lady? Yeah, yeah, date a girl who travels, yeah. It went viral a year ago. And, and it just keeps on giving, I imagine, because I only just saw it uh, about yeah. a month ago. Yeah, I was wondering why people are not uh, sick and tired of it yet. It's been shared a lot of times. <laughs> over- <laughs> they haven't read it yet, so they can't get tired of it until they have. But <laughs> it's an interesting, interesting thought because I'm not sure that many men ask a lady up front, so where have you been to? Mm-hmm. It's not really a one-liner you you, you imagine. Why? Except if it's a fellow travelers, of course. Sure, if you're in the hostels or whatever, yeah. Yeah. But what? So what are the what are the big advantages from dating a woman who's who's a travel a traveling, uh, or has traveling inclinations? Well, primarily the open-mindedness because you have seen a lot in your travels. And uh, you're no longer easily shocked by what you see in uh, other people that you meet. Sure. You've seen so much worse, right? Yeah. W- one of the lead topics of this show is open borders or freedom of movement. Mm. Has this yeah. become a more prominent topic in your own life as well because you've had to deal with so many visas or travel restrictions? That's a very good uh, question because uh, my plan actually is to be in Chile by this year. I want to be. I want to have a 
Chilean passport in five years. Whoa. Yeah. Yeah, and it's very surprised when I read your uh, website because it resonated with what I want, with what I like at this point in my life right now. Right. I actually, I've been looking into Chile a lot, and we, I don't know whether you saw the article. We had a very lengthy article from a, from a man here in the United States who is now living in Chile, and I also interviewed him. Yeah, so basically, I mean, like you, many of us have been looking to Chile as a place of, of relative peacefulness and stability where you can ba- base yourself. And so do you plan to, li- to live there in a long-term manner? Um, the difference between us is that uh, you're from New Zealand, right? Correct, yeah. Basically, you can go almost anywhere without having difficulty with visas. I see. That's true, yeah. For someone like me with a Philippine passport, uh, it's very, very difficult to get a visa to a developed country. Mm. Why, so that's why, why is have, that? I, mean, what, I don't understand what is so wrong with the Philippines. Uh, not just the Philippines, for, for developing countries in general, because uh, most developed countries think that automatically when we're there, we're going to stay illegally and work there. Who, ca- who cares if you do? That's my saying, but whatever. <laughs> <laughs> a, lot of, a lot of the residents, I suppose. <laughs> yeah, yeah, because lot, lots of travelers do just do cash work as they go. I mean, it, you, you, I'm sure you've seen this. When you go to many of the hostels, mm-hmm. they, people who are working in the hostels will often just be travelers who are working for cash or in exchange for room and board or whatever it may be. And so you basically you, you are working on Chilean residency, so then you'll have a passport mm-hmm. with access around the world. Basically, because I just want to go back, for example, to Europe or to go to Australia and New Zealand without having to worry about visas. Mm, right. That is, it's, it's really fascinating. What, what are the new frontiers for you then? Where, you've not been to New Zealand yet? No, I haven't been to New Zealand yet. I haven't applied for a visa yet. Right. What I mean is that what are your next travel plans and sort of prospects for this website you run? Right now, my focus is actually on finding a volunteer work in Chile mm. next couple of months. And uh, there's actually one that I really like. Uh, it's called the Centros de Voluntarios, English okay. Open Doors okay. Program. But they just informed me that they scrapped out some of their uh, batches because they lack the budget. You're too expensive, even as a volunteer? You might want to... Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. I really don't understand that because when I look at other volunteer opportunities, they're always like they're charging for this much amount for just just to volunteer there. It means that I would need a lot of money just to be able to work for free. Yeah, that's well, exactly. That's that's an irony. Working to be to pay money. It's it's strange. Anyway, so. But yeah, there are lots of opportunities going on in Chile, and it does have one of the more open processes of immigration in the world so i can see why you would choose it and that's to its benefit many foreigners are going down there and starting businesses and making it a more prosperous place yeah i've actually also applied for startup chile yes and uh, yes i'll hear about the results next month uh, at the end of the month so i'm hoping that uh, for people who are get- yeah for people who are unaware what exactly is this, is the startup chile program it's a program which uh, allows people all over the world to set up a business in Chile. And uh, if your proposal gets accepted, you'll be given uh, $40,000 as a uh, seed money mm. to work that business. And what sort of business are you are you proposing, if you don't mind sharing with the audience? Um, my partner and I thought of, a, of an app uh, that will help travelers uh, exchange currencies. Because when we travel... 
we always lose a lot when we change money. Mm. Yeah. I see. Well, best of luck with that venture. And so, yeah, the, the website is solitarywanderer.com. Yeah, I'm going to try one more attempt at her name. It is Alea Tabuklawan. Yes. Okay, man, I'm working on that one. Anyway, so yeah, who works at solitarywanderer.com and you can go to facebook.com uh, forward slash the stateless man to check out her articles, which I've linked through to. I want to wish you best of luck getting to Chile and I, I really uh, look forward to following your work. I think you're doing great, great work and you can tell by the number of the traffic you're getting that many people are inspired by it. So I, I uh, thank you for coming on the show. Thank you very much for inviting it's our pleasure. Now, we just have a minute to play with before the break, and I want to point out the feature article from this week, which is Our Egos and the Busy Trap. This article is based around an interview I did with a New York Times cartoonist and blogger who I interviewed last year, but I only really got back to just recently. Yeah, the, the title is Our Egos and the Busy Trap, and if you want to check it out, go to thesatelessman.com. It's the lead article, and I examine whether you're really busy even though everyone claims to be busy or stuck in, in a busy scenario, is that their problem or is it uh, the problem of the context or scenario? And I would say that in many cases it's just your problem. People voluntarily make themselves less free. But uh, otherwise, uh, come back. We've got uh, more guests about sovereignty after the break. Uh, this is The Stateless Man. Are you a fluent English speaker? Get paid to teach English around the world. With 1 billion people learning English, there are 250,000 teachers and nearly 100,000 new jobs a year. International TEFL Academy, based out of Chicago, trains over 1,200 new teachers a year in TEFL certification. Visit RadioITA.com or call 773-634-9900 to request a free brochure. That's RadioITA.com. Mention Stateless Man this month and receive a $50 discount. This is the stateless man pursuing liberty beyond borders. That is uh, international living, financial independence, and personal sovereignty. And we just got uh, done talking with the solitary wanderer. And uh, yeah, just check out her site. She's got a whole bunch of articles on there, and it's getting lots of traffic. And now we're going to switch gears a little bit um, and get on to what I was planning on having as basically the dominant uh, topic of the entire show. But I uh, just do it through complications and some people pulling out it's going to be you know an hour long segment and this is the movement towards secession or sovereignty around the world now as i note in my newsletter if you're not getting the newsletter you can just go to the statelessman.com and sign up on the right it's weekly and uh, i'll not share your email address with, or with anyone else or anything like that uh, i noted in the newsletter that borders change nations come and go and we might forget that if we, one, aren't paying attention or, two, don't know history, but that's just the way it is. And even the United States is a nation found, but founded on secession, secession from the British Empire or Commonwealth. I want to examine this move because there are many secessionist movements going on around the world at any one time, from Tibet to Catalonia to Quebec to Hawaii, people in New Zealand, some of them want to secede or get sovereignty. Now... One area of the world which is probably closer to home or easier for people to understand is Hawaii, actually. And I maybe I should have got Puerto Rico on as well, but 
I forgot about Puerto Rico. Sorry. Yes, I've got a, a man on from Hawaii. And that is because, well, when I was in, in university in New Zealand, I had a guest speaker there. And he discussed basically the history of the United States and explained the way that originally there were only 13 colonies in a very small, much a much smaller area of the world. And how the United States, as we know it, has expanded greatly. Uh, I suspect most people in the United States have no idea that part of Samoa is part of their country. But regardless, there are basically outposts around the world. And he explained, too, that Hawaii never voluntarily joined the Union. There was a referendum, but that referendum was not given in a legitimate manner. And that, in fact, Hawaii was simply occupied in the 1800s and 1900s. And I'm going to get our our guest on to explain this in much greater detail. He's a longtime leader of what you might call the sovereignty or independence movement in Hawaii. And it's a fascinating story. I'll say that I relate a little bit to it as well because the ethnic people of Hawaii, the people who uh, were there longer, they came from Polynesia. And that's uh, similar to the natives of New Zealand, the Maori, who also migrated from, from, from that part of the world. And they still have customs similar, similar. And I think even the language is quite closely related. But so the next guest on, his name is Dennis Bumpy Kanahele. And I don't know whether I pronounced that one right as well. This has been a challenging day for that. But Dennis, uh, welcome to the Stateless Man. I'm really excited to be able to hear more of your story. Uh, thank you. Right. So why don't you set the context here? Because like I said, most people I just think are totally oblivious. And I was too until just a few years ago as to how Hawaii became a part of the United States and then gained statehood in the 1950s. Right, right. Well, it actually goes back to, you know, Hawaii was also a, a nation amongst nations of the world. We, You know, we had treaties with America. I think we had over five treaties. All the treaties uh, were trade, commerce, uh, friendship, peace and friendship. And at the time, back in, in the 1800s, mid-1800s, Hawaii was also known as a neutral country. So, a, a little bit like Switzerland. But, but you, you had, I see the flags that a Hawaiian sovereignty movement people fly having a Union Jack. What is your relationship with the British Commonwealth? Well, the British came in in, in the 1840s, maybe around 18, mid-1840s. And okay. at that time, the the captain of that ship pretty much thought he was God and declared Hawaii to be uh, you know, a province of, of Britain. Uh, and that didn't last around with Admiral Thomas and the king. And they basically, you know, I think it was within that year, it, it you know, Hawaii was given back the sovereignty or, you know, uh, it, that was straightened out. Okay. The more, the you know, and, and because of that, one of the alis or the kings at the time, he adopted that, uh, you know, because it was a, and that was the exchange right there. There was something that, you know, some guy came in and then thought he had the authority to do what he did, and, and the king overturned it and they said they forget it, to give these mm. people back their their sovereignty. So of course that took place, but you know, in in the minds of the colonial powers at that time, you know, plantation uh, owners. And I, I like to call it uh, more of the, you know, the, the Western culture just started to, to basically embark on on Hawaii. And, you know, of course, at that time, Hawaii was full of, of what they call it, the sweet 
incense, right? Um, you know, you could smell the islands when you were coming <laughs> coming towards the chain because of the incense. Okay. And that basically, in, in trade, you know, basically the trade back and forth, I think that started, you know, the the, the influx of, of, you know, the powers with, with money coming in and, and, you know, finding a whole pot of gold to where they got totally involved in, in the community at that time, the villages and the alis via the birth and death. True birth, you get a lot of records, right? Okay, but but how then, how did you get from that, that point of being, like you said, an actual independent island that had treaties with other countries, that was trading openly, to then being under the, a territory of the United States? Well, well, the, the, the whole thing started again. It's, it, you know, I was trying to explain the development of, of colonialism coming in. Now, by the time we reach the 1890s, it was really, really a, a battle going on. And then finally in 1893, with the help of the, the U.S. Uh, you know, Navy at the time, uh, they overthrew the queen. It just took her out. When you said took her out, did they kill her, or were they just—they no, basically they just did not acknowledge her, her existence? Well, well, they, they actually took over the palace. You know, they had a, 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 they had this uh, group of of hired guns that came in and basically, you know, uh, to protect, of course, the citizens of America and the business people. What, because of Hawaii, Hawaii was a threat to the United States, apparently. Well, Hawaii was a, a more of a, you know, more of a, a jewel than anything else, and, right. and they weren't about to let it go, you know. Mm. So uh, when that overthrow, when when that happened, there, there's a lot more to that story because there's yeah. a lot of uh, communications going back and forth in the cabinet, basically, you know, with the help of, of the, the missionary families, right? sugar planters coming in, businessmen and all that. They managed to get her off the throne. And at that point, uh, they, they arrested her and they actually put her in the palace. And, and that was her jail. You know, the jail mm. was on the second floor. Now, it, the, the impact of what had happened at that time was, was very, very slow in reaching us generations later, you know, like a hundred years later. Sure. Because that, that information was kept very, 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 you know, away from the community. When you take off the heads of any country and all you got is people, and it's easy to just come in with a new regime and start to keep business going as usual. Right, yeah, yeah. Uh, I'm going to ask you to just hold that thought, uh, Dennis. Uh, we're speaking with Dennis Bumpy Kanahele and uh, examining the sovereignty movement of Hawaii and its history and how it became part of the United States. But stay with us. Hey, listen to The Stateless Man. This is The Stateless Man, and it's my pleasure to be exploring uh, secessionist or sovereignty movements around the world. Uh, one that came to my attention a few years ago when I was a student in New Zealand was that of Hawaii. And we have a man... Dennis Bumpy Kanahele on the show, and I just posted a link to his bio on the uh, on the Stateless Man Facebook page, and you can um, check it out in more detail. And we're discussing basically how I mean, let, let me. I want to try and get get to the punch because we've only got uh, this final segment of about ten minutes to play with. That there was basically an armed takeover of Hawaii 
of the Queen, and she was taken hostage by U.S. forces. Of course, Hawaii was no threat to the United States. That's ridiculous. And it was just a an act of, you could say, cronyism or expanding U.S. interests into Hawaii. Now, actually, Bumby, if you, have, have I said anything uh, incorrect there? You want to? Would you like to correct? No, no, no. You you actually uh, you're doing real well. Thank you. Know, you. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's good. It's good. Right. Well, like I said, I'm, I am sympathetic, and I'll just say, I mean, looking at your images, if you just do a Google a Google search, your name, uh, yeah, very similar look to people of New Zealand, where I'm from, including the uh, tattoos. What do you call What do you call them in Hawaiian culture? On 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 what? What was that again? Just just your tattoos in New Zealand. Yeah, they're very very strong part of the Maori culture. Right, right. No, it's kakao. Uh, you know, okay. Uh, it you know it, it, it had more meaning in the past, but uh, yeah, it's you know again, it's we're in the uh, a lot of people are in the discovery rediscovery mindset right now. You know, you know, we're learning about our history, which was pretty much short and it's about 120 years ago since since the overthrow right but yeah it's 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 unbelievable when you know when you have treaties we we still as as hawaiians we still get mixed up in in indigenous uh, people's identity and 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 we have a problem you know some of us have a real big problem with being indigenous being that you know that was formulated out of the united nations the united states was a big part of making all that happen so there's another layer to to when you look at it from a viewpoint of a hawaiian there's an underlying layer there that is yeah there's a lot of people out there that are organized but never had a government before and Mm. yeah indigenous people's rights to that opportunity is valid. But the Hawaiian people, because we had, you know, we had over 30 treaties, right? Swiss, Russia, Japan, Belgium, France, Tahiti, you know, somehow. Sure. Okay. Uh, you having all these, these treaties, you know, and they're still being placed in uh, uh, or identified as a people that had nothing, right? Mm. Now, again, after the overthrow, it was a real quick, quick, you know, thing that happened, they, they created a provisional government, right? Chiefs, the puppet government. Uh, then from 1893 to 1894, the Republic of Hawaii was created. But they, they got, they had a problem in 1897. There was a petition that was against the annexation of Hawaii. And that was in 1897. So the battle- Among who? Who's, who signed this petition? Just the residents there? No, yeah, there was, there was a, 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 it was noted in the history, uh, to paperwork and books that there were over 30,000 signatures against the annexation. Mm. Just so happened about in 1994, 95, a woman here that was doing her thesis found a number, a code that led her to the Library of Congress. When <laughs> she went to the Library of Congress to do her research, she pulled out twenty two thousand some odd you know seven hundred signatures, and the signatures were against the annexation of Hawaii now the the critical part is at that time uh annexation needed two thirds of you know the annexationists needed two thirds of the u s Congress to pass and it didn't pass and it was due to the fact that this petition had a big impact on the legislators there. Okay, so so there was no 
annexation that passed in the U.S. Congress, and there was a petition right. in Hawaii against annexation, yet here we are today. Right. It, it came via joint resolution. So okay. the, it was not an annexation, which, again, at that time and without the apology law in 1993, you know, made it, like, totally... Like these guys going through a joint resolution now, right? That was how easy it, it, it was taken away. Then, of course, then the territory was ceded over to the U.S. in, in 1898, 1900. It was a, a critical thing because they needed laws for a territory that had no laws, right? It had no government. Of course, it was taken away. Mm. And then, and then, uh, from that time till the, a critical part was in 1945. Yeah, the United States had a sacred trust obligation now under the United Nations decolonization process. And that was Article 73 of the UN Charter. Now, what that meant is the United States was supposed to take the Hawaiians by the hand and to help them understand the whole government action and whatever and to take their place in government. And and that was the critical time. It was like they were trying to justify what happened back in 1893, right? 1945, mm. you know, 1945 when the United Nations was created. Hawaii, Alaska, and most of the territories, you know, like Puerto Rico, Cuba, Virgin Isles, Guam, Samoa, were all put under Article 73. And the trust obligation or the sacred trust obligation by the nation states at the time, you know, we fell under the... the uh, oversight of the United States. Then, <clears throat> during that time from 45 to 1959, you're talking about statehood. Again, you know, like I was saying, that the United States is supposed to take these Hawaiian people through this process so they can regain their government, they can, you know, take over the government institutions again, exactly how the decolonization process was set up. Then in 1959, of course, you know, the uh, the plebiscite, you know, you were supposed to, they, they were supposed to have, the voting was supposed to be based on an independent country, uh, a free association with an independent country, or integration with an independent country. And if, you know, you read the history, uh, they asked if Hawaii wanted to, you know, stay a territory or become a state of the union. That was the two questions that was posed. There were, there, okay, so, so there, was an, there was there was an embedded assumption that you already were a territory, exactly. a part of the United States. Now, mind you, mind you, know that at that same time, right, Japan, the war was over, the building, a lot of Japanese was in internment camps here. Mind you that that Article seventy three, you know, to ensure with due respect to the culture of the people's concern, their mm. political, economic, social. Educational advancement, just treatment and protection against abuses. This was Article 73 that I just read. Uh, and, and because of that being in place, the Japanese took full advantage of that in Hawaii at the same time. So we're starting to learn this. And, and when we found, we found out on how that all was put together, I mean. Right. Well, it, Dennis, it, we, we, we've got limited time until the break. So I really want to, uh, so fast forward to what your yeah. prospects are now. Because people like you who are campaigning to have some, an independent Hawaii, I mean, is this right. just pie in the sky or is anything actually happening? No, no, everything's, 
everything that's happening here, right now, you got two types of Hawaiians. You got the less than, and you got the ones that got everything. And that's usually the ones that handle in our trust or office, government office agencies. But they were in bed with the guys that trying to keep us from having all the things that we should have, or at least a shot and an opportunity at it. What I'm talking about that we need is a free, fair, and impartial political process. We have to go there so that we can educate people and we can bring uh, bring a process together. Our our talk is right now is about a constitutional convention for Hawaiians. Okay. Uh, because the, the damage is really bad. And, and a constitutional convention or a fair process allows not just our people, but allows the people of Hawaii and the rest of the world to get educated on really what took place here. And we're not talking about secession. We're talking about withdrawal. <laughs> you know, United States withdrawal from the violations that had happened. And and I mind see. you, now is probably the best time because guys sitting on the, the top seat in the United States was born here. So there's there's something definitely in in the, the in in the spirit world that's going on that we all can't see. Well, let me, let me, I want to point also to the fact that you have written about, well, you've, there's there's an article or page on your site, uh, bumpykanahele.com regarding follow the money, native Hawaiian economics about starting a a new or alternative currency in Hawaii. And that's of great interest to stateless man followers or listeners. The alternative currency is getting out of the Federal Reserve note system. And I, I see that you are pushing for that. Yeah, yeah, I, I was doing that for kind of a long time because, you know, when you, when you talk about this, this is heavy stuff. When you talk about whether it's secession or withdrawal, you still have to have an economic base. And so my whole thing was, okay, that's the next thing we're going to run into. Yeah, fine, you know, these, these Hawaiians want this political status, but, you know, you guys going to sell poi, coconuts, or are you going to have an offshore Banking system, uh, trade and commerce, you know, reenter. You need, you need, you need to have alternative institutions to replace what you're moving away from. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And it's, you know, with technology today and the way, you know, things are run, it's not hard. I, I think the most important thing and valuable thing that we have is that we can sustain ourselves. Right. Bumpy, we, we, we're hard against the break, actually. Uh, but I, I want to say that I appreciate your time, and we could speak on for a, a long time on this topic. I'm posting your website on the Facebook page, facebook.com forward slash The Stateless Man. Uh, but otherwise, thank you for joining us uh, today. Okay, you're welcome. Hey, take care. Excellent. Uh, stay with us, folks. After the break, we'll be examining Quebec and a movement up there. This is The Stateless Man. This is The Stateless Man for the pursuit of individual liberty beyond arbitrary borders, oppressive governments, and myths of national obligations. If you value liberty and are willing to migrate and vote with your feet, you've come to the right place. This is The Stateless man pursuing liberty beyond borders that is international living financial independence and personal 
Sovereignty. The sponsor of this hour is AMTG Solutions. That's amtgs.com for your digital media and web development needs. Uh, Tony, the founder of that organization, is a friend of mine and does excellent work, including the statelessman.com. So check him out, amtgs.com. This last half hour, we were discussing sovereignty for Hawaii or basically getting out of the United States, uh, what people call a union, but we know that it's not really voluntary. And now, as I noted leading into that segment, there are secessionist movements or sovereignty movements all around the world going on all the time, and borders are both porous and uh, they move, and countries cease to exist. Yale, our next guest, he is a fellow stateless man or international man, and I'm really pleased to have him associated with the show. He's written a bunch of articles for the site, and uh, his own website is Liberty in Exile. He's got an excellent podcast. It's uh, my favorite I listen to almost all of them. I, I, I follow them pretty closely. So that's libertyandexile.com. And he examines uh, the police state, international politics, the European Union, a lot of great material. And he, yeah, so he's now in Austria. I think he's doing a master's in uh, journalism or, I don't know, political economy maybe. So his, his latest article on the site was Catalonia yearns to break free or yearns to be free. Uh, about Catalonia within Spain uh, and the movement for sovereignty there. But he is actually more of an expert on Quebec, where he spent, I guess, the first 10 or so years of his life. And I really want to examine that one. That's close to me, too, because I have lived in Canada, and lots of my cousins are, are based there. And one thing about Quebec, too, is that it's probably one of the closest places on the planet to actually achieving a voluntary secession. That is to say that it, it could be done that, that I think given a referendum, uh, they could leave and without any violence or anything like that. So, yeah, do you want to correct me on that? Is, am I mischaracterizing Quebec? Well, not at all. Not at all, Fergus. Uh, again, thanks for having me on. But if uh, we just look back in the short term of history, just the time that I've been alive, right. we had a referendum in Quebec in 1995, and it lost by less than 1%. Incredible. Yeah, so obviously, like you were saying, voluntary. In uh, I believe they had another referendum in 1980. In that one, they lost by about 10 percent, mm. um, so it didn't happen. But again, now there is a a separatist government in control, and there are pushes to perhaps have a, a referendum within the next two or three years. So we could uh, see that coming down the pipe. Let's examine. I'm getting a little bit of echo here. I, I don't know whether you're wearing headphones, but. Uh, I'm getting, like I said, I'm getting better, better echo, but let's examine the history as to why, I mean, people don't realize that the provinces of Canada, many of them are relatively new. Newfoundland and Labrador, for example, they are a new, you could say, acquisition to the, to the nation. How did Quebec come to be part of Canada? Well, Quebec was always sort of at the base of the idea of Canada. It was uh, called Lower Canada initially. Mm. It was uh, at one point in time uh, controlled by the French as part of their empire. But come 1803 and the Louisiana Purchase down there and uh, the United States of America, France basically left North America and left all the French-speaking population up in Lower Canada, as they're called, to the English and the English, therefore, took over control and was able to rule them and impose all sorts of laws and regulations, especially how they were able to, to speak and use their language. And a lot of them were not allowed to speak French in any sort of public fashion. Mm. So that was the beginning. And then you had the Confederation 
of Canada uh, towards 1867. That's sort of right after the or 18, yeah, right after the American Civil War. So they're sort of looking at what was going on there and saying oh. we don't want a type of separation <laughs> here in Canada. So right. That's how it was birthed. Yeah, at that time, people forget that at the time, the war between the states and the United States was the most bloody war in history at that time. And I think somewhere around 600,000 uh, people died. I need to look back and get that number, but an extremely uh, violent and costly battle, or well, more than battle, war. So, okay, so, so Quebec was always not, well, you say lower Canada at that time, and... I'm not sure why the British saw fit to impose a language or what the deal was with that, but I will say there still is a ton of, as you know, you know this so well. This is a ton of French spoken across Canada, not just in Quebec, but in New Brunswick, Nova Scotia, and I assume other parts of the country. Although I'm not so familiar with outside of those few provinces, but what has been the evolution then over the past, you could say, 150 years? Why has it taken so long if Quebec is or will become independent? Why has it not happened already? Well, it all goes down to autonomy. And there was really no constitution which ruled Canada uh, for about a 100 years. You had something called the British North America Act, which is basically an act of the British Parliament, which mm -hmm. was the founding document of Canada. And that really stood the test of time until about 1982 when Whoa. you had the the Canadian Constitution put forth by Pierre Trudeau, which really sparked the sovereignty movement, you know, mm. to such an extreme and to this day just brings so much scorn. And that, you know, that's sort of being renewed now because his son, Justin Trudeau, uh, just won the leadership of the Liberal Party and the federal parliament. Really? So the same type of arguments are coming back up and there's going to be much more uh, emphasis on this issue. That's an interesting point you make because I think people forget that Canada is more of a federal federal system than the United States, that Canada does not have a Department of Education. And we had, a couple of weeks ago, we had Joe Cannell from the Frontier Centre discussing how all the property rights uh, go from the, from the provincial level and that I guess they can challenge them at the federal courts. But still, Canada is, is very localized in a lot of its governance. But we could discuss there, there, are, there are major problems, though, in terms of things like equalization payments, which I'm sure rattle people, not exactly the Quebecois. But uh, so there's, there's been, you could say, in, in more recent times, a consolidation post the, the, North, the British North America Act. Uh, we are, we're approaching the break, though, so I'm going to uh, hold back on that. I'll just say that Yalosovsky, he's a, a writer and podcaster. Over in Austria right now, he does great work. He uh, publishes with Florida Watchdog and his own site, libertyinexile.com. And he's also written an article about Catalonia, the secessionist movement or sovereignty movement there. If you want to go to thestatelessman.com, just look up Catalonia. You will find it. If you have questions for him about what is going to happen in Quebec, because I know Yale still follows it closely and he does some broadcasts in French, you can call in 1-888-741-7472. Otherwise, stay with us. This is The Stateless Man. Welcome back to the Stateless Man Pursuing Liberty Beyond Borders. We're speaking uh, a good friend of mine and a, a fellow stateless man, a, an international traveler. His name is Yalosovsky. His website is libertyinexile.com. 
and he has lived in Quebec throughout the United States, and he's over in Austria right now. And the, we've just been discussing the prospect of secession or sovereignty for Quebec, why that would occur. And there many questions arise from such a proposition. And what, one thing that makes this more interesting is that it actually could happen, that uh, Quebec could become an independent nation. But the one thing that just came to mind then is, what about all the French speakers in places like New Brunswick? Yeah, I mean, that, that's always been uh, sort of the push. But the, the point is, is that sovereignty and independence for Quebec is not solely rooted in the French language. I know it sort of tends to take that approach. You know, people see it from the outside. Sure. But that's really not what it is. It's about age-old institutions. It's about the province of Quebec being self-sustaining, having its own electricity. It's really that push. And I also would like to go to your, your point. You're talking about how yeah, yeah. it could be feasible. There's right. a new book which just came out. A lot of people were, of course, uh, hubbubbing about mm. it in Quebec. It's called uh, London in 1981 or something like that. It's about how all the big countries, such as the U.S. and Britain, were actually preparing for Quebec to become an independent country. And the author was able to receive, you know, these confidential cables basically saying, oh, this is what we would do if Quebec became independent. We would become an ally. We would allow them for this. And mm. really, it was showing that even around the world, people saw that Quebec could initially become a nation. Yeah, I mean, well, the fact is, what, Quebec has something like 9 million people, right? Yeah, 8, 9 million. Yeah, so that's twice the size of New Zealand. Many nations, that's, that's more than Switzerland. Many nations have smaller populations than that, so I don't see any reason why it couldn't be. One challenge, and this sort of rhetoric you hear about, you know, united we stand, divided we fall, is just kind of silly. And I, I'll just say that many of the people up in Canada, I'm not sure whether you want to describe them as conservative, but just kind of whip, whip away at Quebec or mock it. But only when Quebec can really get independence can it, can it really show its, you could say, true colors or whether it can stand alone. Right now, you're kind of damned if you do, damned if you don't, that even if you talk about – basically, Quebec has not really had a, had a chance to affirm its capacity to be independent. So you can mock it all day until you actually give it a chance. It's, it's just, those are just kind of empty mocks. But anyway, so what would independence actually look like now? Because from memory, these questions about secession, the polls, they have – how can I put this? They've in, included kind of prov provisos. That you'd still use the Canadian dollar, for example, the loonie. What are the provisos that usually go along with these uh, shifts toward toward independence for Quebec? I think that's one part that is kind of problematic because the most resurgent type of separatism, or as we would call sovereignty movements, and again, it's very palpable. They're in the National Assembly of Quebec, you have three parties which are all dedicated to sovereignty, and they have majority control if you kind of slap them all together. Mm. What we're really talking about is a way for Quebec to move forward. And when people talk about what it would mean to have an independent Quebec, it just means being able to control its own affairs, not having to rely on Ottawa for all this money, not having to basically be told by Ottawa that we have to send soldiers into Afghanistan or they're thinking about going into Iraq, that we have to continually be part of all these very expensive international treaties that perhaps Quebec does not want to be a part of. Another part that really fueled Quebec nationalism was World War II, where yeah. Canadian soldiers were basically conscripted into the war to help their ally, the British. 
and there were a lot of French speakers that were totally against the war, and there a lot of great literature and music has come about from that time. And I think that's another part of what has been very strong about Quebec is just the culture. It has its own music, its own language, its own perception of the world that they see as completely apart from the Canadian identity. And I think that's what all the people that you're talking about who try to rag on Quebec, they don't understand. Canada, the way it exists now, is, is really nothing but the 51st state of the United States. And I, I don't oh. really, I, I'm not really ashamed <laughs> of saying that because it's true. Well. Both countries, I know what it's like. There are tiny institutional differences, but really, that's all it is. It's true, actually. I will say that the disparities, I think there's still a lot of disparities in mindset uh, across the borders or culture, but in terms of actual governance, that those are diminishing all the time, particularly as uh, more states in the U.S. get sales taxes now. I'm not sure whether it's past year, but there's a likelihood that there'll be a, a across-the-board internet sales taxes that every state will have to collect sales taxes on behalf of other states. And there may well be in the near future an actual national sales tax in the United States. So even the, so the tax burden will become much closer. So the, yeah, the differences are, how can I put this, yeah, diminishing. One thing, this is a bit of a, a, a sensitive topic, Pastor Quebecois, and I know you, you'd, be, you'd be better, well qualified to answer this one, but I have looked into the equalization system in Canada, particularly when I was a, a policy analyst back in, in Nova Scotia. And Nova Scotia is also, you could say, guilty of this, but the, what do they call, what are the equalization payments that go from the federal government, so from other, other provinces to Quebec, equates to, I'm guessing a thousand dollars per person in Quebec. It might be more than that, but I haven't looked in a while, but basically, enormous subsidy from other states to Quebec. And I'm, I'm sure this goes to bureaucracy and it's just wasted largely. But what do you make of the fact that so much money is going from other provinces to Quebec? That's sort of the way that the system is set up. Now in Canada, you have provinces, which you do have a majority of the control, like you were saying before. And what really has emerged is you have provinces which are much richer, such as mm -hmm. Alberta, British Columbia, a lot of oil out there and a lot of power. And because Quebec, you know, maybe at one time was much more resilient, now it's facing tougher times. The way that the system is set up, they actually take in $8 billion. But right. the, the thing is, is that this is also sort of money that is taken out of the chunk that, that Quebecers themselves pay to Canada. Because we have a federal sales tax in Canada as well. That doesn't really exist in the U.S. yet. But we have to pay every single transaction. Part of it goes to Ottawa, and that's income tax goes to Ottawa. And there's a lot, a, a lot of money, and there's a lot of studies that have been done by Montreal Economic Institute hmm. specifically as to exactly how much. But it is true that right now, in order to fund all of their social welfare plans, like the you know five dollar a day daycare, Quebec is basically dependent upon the money that comes from the West. Right. And is that why we would we were in, uh, corresponding earlier about this? Is that why you support an incremental uh, process of Quebec Quebec independence? Well, I would uh, say that we would need independence in Quebec the second that Quebecers can prove that they can be independent. That what they can you, be on how, their own. How, how could they prove that? Well, really, what that means is at this point you have to get things in order. 
You have to get the budget in order. You have to get the deficit in order. The amount of debt and deficits they have now in Quebec makes it the fifth most indebted jurisdiction politically in the world. Holy. And that, that, and that really is a problem you've when got you're some, trying you've to got speak some, about independence. Yeah, you've got some big competitors in that, in that field too. I mean, you're beating out uh, Greece. You're beating up – does that include state jurisdictions like California? Yeah, no, it does. I mean, that's, that's, that's the thing is the fifth most. And again, this is just at the beginning of the basically socialist Parti Québécois party who are hell-bent very much on pushing a much more state-centered mm. agenda than actual sovereignty. And I think that's what's kind of been the problem in Quebec is that sovereignty has been tied now to this leftist this sort of – collectivist mindset and I've, I've written articles to that effect right. and gotten a lot of flack for it yeah, what what's the flack because i my hunch is that too that even if quebec were independent i wouldn't be moving there because you've got such a police state uh type government there yeah, that's the thing is that for especially a lot of uh, i would say right-leaning quebecers or people who are just mindful of economics yeah the idea that the government wants to continually spend more and more and actually they take more of their examples from france than they do from the u.s in oh. this instance they want to move their tax rates up to 75 percent whoa continually Sorry. give out welfare people won't leave at all no <laughs> not at all but no. there still is hope yeah yeah i mean that's just really insightful mate we, we we're hard against uh the bottom of the hour so uh yeah i mean i obviously i really appreciate your work and i'm glad you got to come on uh we'll be in touch okay sounds good fergus good luck thanks so much man this is the stateless man and we're broadcasting on overseas radio network Welcome to the Stateless Man. We're pursuing liberty beyond borders. We just got, just finished off a full hour discussing secession or sovereignty movements around the world, and it's just a fascinating topic. We could speak all day on that. And Yale, uh, a good friend of mine and a, a very talented podcaster, and investigative reporter, writer, uh, was shared about Quebec and what is going on there. I uh, we I had another guest planned to dis- discuss Quebec further, but he is not was was not able to make it. And I've, I've found great replacement. I wanted to get, wanted to get him on earlier anyway. His name is Jacob Hornberger and he is uh, a role model, uh, for, you could say, liberty advocacy. His organization, he's the president of the Future of Freedom Foundation, which is fff.org. And they have a daily update, which I get and read. I, I scan every day for basically the latest news of relevance to individual liberty. I've also written about a dozen articles for them over the last few years, and I'm, I'm just proud to be affiliated with them uh, because they basically present, in my view, an honest – basically just they just speak the truth about the situation, about liberty, rather than couching it like many think tanks do and you could say um, are less clear terms. One thing that came to my attention recently in one of their updates was that they have an – FFF has a new – digital book out or an ebook out and this one is on the case for uh let me bring it up here the case for international trade or free trade and open immigration let me get yeah the, the case for free trade and open immigration that's the image i've posted on the facebook site uh which is facebook.com forward slash the stateless man and jacob hornberg is the editor of this along with richard ebling who i also got to know when i was working at, at the american institute for economic research 
so this is basically one of the, the key themes, the central topics of the stateless man, with a celebration of human initiative, freedom of movement, both trade, immigration, basically engaging in peaceful activity towards uh, you know, a more prosperous life for yourself. And open borders is just such a, a key policy. I don't really, I try to stay away from candidates or a lot of politics, but open borders is an issue which I'm not going to back down. Well, basically, I'm, I'm very glad to speak about because I think it's such a, an, a positive move that people could make and for a variety of reasons. Now, we're going to examine that further in this, with this book. Now, originally it was published back in, I think, 1995, in the 1990s. So first I'll just, I'll just welcome Jacob Hornberger to the show. Thanks so much for joining us on The Stateless Man. Oh, thank you, Fergus. It's nice to be here. Right, and I should say, yeah, so FFF is the website, or FFF.org. Now, you first published this back in 1995, I think. What has changed between then and now? Has Is the book of precisely the same content? Uh, yes, we're, but, uh, we're, we're thinking about adding some essays on there because obviously we've written on this subject many, many times since then. Right. Uh, we, 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 we thought of it as a two-step process. Let's get the original book online and then, uh, look and see, um, all the additional articles and figure out which ones to add, mm. um, going down that road. But, I mean, clearly the immigration situation has gotten worse and worse. And to me, it's right. a classic example of Ludwig von Mises' dictum that one interventionism and, and inevitably leads to more interventions. Right. Uh, that, that's that's so true because I don't think people realize that there's a whole industry of lobbies around immigration controls. You've got all these immigration lawyers. And as I noted in my recent article on FFF, the Department of Homeland Security now employs 240,000 people. It's just such an enormous – it's a, a city of people working for this that depend on this closed-border uh, policy. So I'm, I'm not surprised that they want to lobby against it, and they, and they kind of want to provoke fears from, from people here about immigrants to justify their existence. Absolutely. I mean, and, and you, they're not the only ones. If you look at the whole, the whole Border Patrol structure, uh, customs, uh, the drug war apparatus, I mean, it, it, I don't know if you've ever been to the Texas-Mexican border or any uh, Mexican border in the southwest, but it's a little mini-police state. I've, I just, I, I've had an experience there, yeah. Yeah, I mean, they've got these fixed checkpoints on highways that inside the United States that we're not even talking about at the border. It's inside the, the highways uh, uh, inside the United States, and it's incredible. You feel like you're, you're reaching the Soviet Union when you go through these checkpoints that are inside the country. Right. What do you say then? I mean, we could discuss, in my view, the economics uh, side of it is clear, that mutually, yeah, mutually beneficial trade doesn't really harm anybody. And I think anyone arguing against this, is going to have a hard time bringing up an argument on that in that fashion. Usually I hear things such as these people are going to be burdens on the welfare system or they're going to change the U.S. culture, they're going to diminish the English language, or uh, let me think. Yes, so those those two, like you could say burdens on welfare and they get crime, uh, English language. Why don't you speak about the culture then? Because one, I'll just say quickly, I've written on this extensively and that uh, in the United States, it just so happens that immigrants have much lower rates of crime, and their welfare use is about roughly equal to uh, what Native people have as well. What do you say to people who are concerned about, you could say, preserving a certain type of culture? 
Well, I get letters like that sometimes, and I say, well, that's interesting. What culture are you referring to? I grew up in Laredo, Texas, on the border, and I say, right. are you trying to preserve our culture in Laredo where 80% of the conversations are in Spanish, huh. the street signs are in Spanish, <laughs> uh, right. signs in stores are in Spanish and English, and I say, is that the culture you want to preserve? And, of course, they're always befuddled by that because they don't consider Laredo to be part of America. Oh, really? <laughs> but it really is. We should, we should shift the borders a bit north of it, I guess. Is that the plan? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know, and then I say, well, why don't we give, give the entire northern half of Mexico that we stole in the Mexican War back to you? You'd you have to push Miami into the sea, too, because I'm telling you, there's plenty of Spanish spoken here. And people forget you that Puerto Rico is part of the United States. They speak Spanish there. And even yeah. New, New Mexico, I think, is the highest percentage of actually an entire state that speaks Spanish, too. And I'm not sure what the percentage is, but they have had Spanish just a big part of, of its history going a long way back prior to recent arrivals of immigrants. So I, I find that a struggle, too. I will often say, which which English are you referring to? Is it the English from the Queen or the English or American English? I, I lose track. Well, so, they don't – yeah, go ahead. No, no. So I, – I, but, but those instances, those arguments are out there and they're flowing – and recently, I got involved in a little bit of a tangle where someone was posting these comments that basically illegal immigrants get better treatment than veterans of the U.S. military. Now, I'm not an expert on what veterans get or their benefits, but I just thought that this was the kind of argument that goes around, that these, these loose arguments that somehow having no documentation is better than being you know, on the government payroll. Now, what what do you make of the, the, the prevalence of those arguments? Does that, does that suggest that there's almost like an instinctual uh, fear of foreigners or something like that? Why do these, in my view, very sloppy arguments circulate so widely? I think it's that xenophobia and the fear of immigrants and people don't want to admit that, so they cast themselves with ridiculous arguments. I mean, on the culture argument... Our, our country is a culture of liberty. That's, that's what dis, has always distinguished America, where you can have different cultures like New Orleans and San Francisco and mm. Chinatown. And I mean, that's, that's what makes America is all the diverse cultures coming together. Um, and then uh, on the English only, e, you know, even the English only crowd is not consistent because they'll talk about taking a trip to San Francisco or El Paso and instead of going to St. Francis and the pass. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, <laughs> You know, they're not, they're not consistent themselves. What difference does it make if people are speaking foreign languages? Today there's a, there's a million Americans living in Mexico. Most of them are not assimilating. They hang out amongst themselves. They don't learn Spanish. Who cares? You know, just leave people free to do what they want. Well, not, I don't mean, I'm not concerned about it. Great. When I first came to the U.S., uh, I found Mexican food. We don't have it in New Zealand. I was going, this is brilliant. And so I, I'm so glad there are immigrants here. Uh, boosting the culture. And I say, too, that one of the most resilient nations or, on the planet or, or most secure and, you could say, respectful of liberty, too, is Switzerland. And they have four national languages. And it, almost everyone speaks English, too, so just an ex extremely multilingual place. Now, I just point to that in, in terms of a, a counterexample. Uh, we're, we're approaching the break. If you've got a question, maybe you're, you're new to this idea of open borders, call in 1-888-741-7472. Uh, we're speaking with Jacob Hornberger of the Future of Freedom Foundation. Stay with the stateless man.
My name is Jacob Hornberger. I'm president of the Future of Freedom Foundation, which Congressman Ron Paul awarded for having an outstanding freedom website. Write us at FFF at FFF.org, and we'll send you a free three-month subscription to our monthly journal of libertarian essays and our booklet, Economic Liberty in the Constitution, which George Mason University economics professor Walter Williams praised in a recent column. That's FFF at FFF.org. Welcome back to The Stateless Man. We're broadcasting from Pompano Beach in Florida, and I'm speaking with the president of the Future of Freedom Foundation. His name is Jacob Hornberger. That's FFF.org. And they have a new ebook out. It's called The Case for Free Trade and Open Migration. You can find a link to that uh, in the in this week's newsletter. I'll also post a link on the Stateless Man Facebook page. And we're just discussing the challenge is with, in my view, yeah, he, he, Jacob mentioned the idea of xenophobia as an explanation for what I see are just incredibly sloppy arguments often against open, open borders, open immigration. And that may be true. And one other, you could say, piece of evidence that is suggestive in this regard is that many people who are extremely ardent supporters of free trade will then not be for free migration. And actually, many people who are supporters of open immigration are against free trade. And I'm thinking, what are you going to come with no goods on you? You're going like, to have free movement but no, no goods coming? But I'm glad you've made the, this book about both together. Do you want to explain why those two go together? Yeah, they're really the only solution to the immigration mess we have and, and, uh, and all the tariffs and protectionism and stuff. There's really no other way. And it's a very simple process. I mean, look at the United States domestically. Right. We have the greatest, greatest free trade and open immigration zone in the, in the world where people, in history, where people can freely cross borders back and forth. Nobody's keeping track. Nobody is saying there's a trade deficit between Florida and Virginia and we've got to do something <laughs> about it. Nobody right. cares. That's exactly what would happen. Just think in terms of expanding that notion to international borders where people are free to go, come into an international airport, pick up their luggage, go on without going through customs and immigration, and everybody retains their citizenship. You know, Mexicans come over here, they retain their citizenship, they work, they invest, they tour, they do whatever, they return to their families if they want, and, and everybody just mutually coordinates their activities the same way we do domestically. It's the only way to, to end all this, this immigration crisis, trade crisis, and so forth. Right. I'll just say on a more personal note, one reason why this is so uh, sensitive to me too is that many, many of us want to live more adventurous lives. And we don't know, we had a, I'm, I'm going to have to bring up this quote on the Statelessman uh, page again, but basically you don't know that you're controlled until you want to do something that's against the rules, right? So if you, if, if you don't want to go out and live in other countries, you, you don't really feel the, the, the burden of this. But we had, for example, in the first half hour of the show, a lady who has been traveling extensively. She is from the Philippines. And she was just saying that basically she cannot get to many developed countries in the world because the visa process is so, so difficult that she has, is, is applying to get Chilean citizenship just so she can get the Chilean passport and travel more, more widely around the world. And I've also posted an, an article of a, of a man, of an American man, man from the United States who, 
I just went for a cycling trip across Russia, and apparently you weren't, he wasn't allowed to stay more than three months. But he got told the officials told him he could stay for longer. But in the end, he got in the end he got deported. And I'm just saying, why can't we just go for a long term trip through a country? I mean, it just seems like the most harmless thing around. But these laws cut down on the, that more adventurous element of life. Now, one thing you also pointed upon, Jacob, is the way that this issue has become even more and more problematic over time. It's like there's a, in just a backlog of people who fall through the cracks of a, of a centrally planned immigration system has just grown you know, over the years. Is there a way out of this, or other than just maybe basically mass civil disobedience, which seems to be going on right now? Well, this is standard interventionism. I mean, they pass a law that says, okay, it's illegal for people to come into this country without permission. And then people say, okay, we don't believe in that law. We're going to cross the border. <laughs> and so they say, oh, well, now we have to have guards at the border. And the immigrant says, okay. So they cross over to ranches and farms around the, the, the bridge where the guards are. Oh, well, now we have to have guards and to watch the bridge, the farmlands around the border. And I grew up on the Rio Grande on a farm there. I mean, they, they had yeah. Border Patrol coming on, onto our farm without warrants and stuff. And then, they, you know, we, we hired illegal aliens on my farm because it was legal to hire them. So the next step was, well, let's make it illegal to hire them, and then they won't come. Mm. Well, then they get the fake uh, ideas. IDs. Right. Yeah. And, it, and now they're raiding private businesses. They never raid welfare offices where the, huh. the people claim they're there. They're always raiding <laughs> private businesses because that's where they're working. I know. I know. That's, that's so ironic. Yeah. Well, that, that's one of the challenges I, I try and communicate too, that there's one side of it which is appealing to people's sense of, you could say, just respect for other people, that you don't want to hurt other people. But I, on the other hand, I just say, look, it's in your own best interests. Do you want to pay to deport people? Now, when I went through and calculated this myself, I came to a number of, I think about between thirty and forty thousand dollars per deportation, and the lowest number that I've found is twelve and a half thousand dollars. A different calculation. Do you want to? Pay, is it really worth your money spending twelve and a half thousand dollars to put someone out of the country? Do, are they are they costing you that much? So I try and uh, approach it from a, it's an in your interests direction. Now. What do you think are the most compelling arguments in this book you've got, though? Well, one argument is the economic one. The one you bring up is fascinating. I hadn't considered that part of it. But actually, immigrants are a boon to a society. I mean, right. Americans don't realize how they're interfering with their own standard of living through the division of labor, of having all this cheap labor come in and, and do work that really a lot of Americans don't want to do. And that frees up other the Americans that are currently doing those jobs to move into higher-paying jobs, because remember, the immigrants are buying cars and, and uh, buying all kinds of stuff for their kids and whatever, mm -hmm. so they're producing wealth at the same time as coming into the country and working for a living. But our strongest argument is the moral argument. I mean, America yeah. was founded on the principle of open immigration because Americans believe that that's part of a person's freedom, as you say, to be able to go anywhere in the world and for adventure, for tourism, for whatever, that you have a fundamental right to travel. And um, and so we say we ought to have open borders because it's the moral principle. It's the religious principle. This is the way you treat your fellow man. This is the way you love your neighbor. You treat him decently and respectfully the way you would any human being. Right. And I'll, I'll say, too, that uh, the way we uh, discriminate across uh, different uh, citizenships or nationalities has a darker side to it. Uh, firstly... Uh, we, we've had a guest on the show, a man who has no citizenship. Or he's just purely stateless, and he was stuck down in American Samoa for more than a year. 
And, and there was a great article in the Freeman about how these closed borders feed human trafficking. Naturally, when you create a, a you could say, an arbitrage opportunity between jurisdictions that is impeded by the law, you're going to feed organized crime to get around that law. So, so basically, the, this, this article in the Freeman makes this strong claim that barriers to movement feed human trafficking. And if people could flow freely, they wouldn't have to hire coyotes or whatever. And I recently read about a Honduran who made the trek with, I think, something like 50 bucks in his pocket, all the way from Honduras, uh, you know, a risky venture for, for not a lot of return. But he was just saying that if you try and go across the border at that, at where he went across, uh, without a coyote, they will kill you. So basically you have to use one of their cartelized, uh, coyotes. That's absolutely right, and it's a dangerous ball game. And there's a lot of people that lose their lives in this process. Um, there's uh, cases where the coyotes are transporting people in tractor trailers, where they just uh, die of, of heat exhaustion in the back of the tractor trailer. Mm-hmm. And the feds go after the transporter and the you know the driver and say, "Oh, well, you've effectively committed manslaughter or murder here," but really, it's the law that that provides this opportunity that creates this incentive and so the people that are that are creating the laws to me are just as morally responsible as the is the transporter that gets these people into that kind of trouble um, notice that in a free market immigration system you don't have any of that people just cross borders and they take the bus or the plane or the car or whatever and they move north or wherever just like the rest of us do you totally eliminate that that black market, that illegality. What do you make of the situation where there are some issues within, you could say, the libertarian uh, movement that are divisive? And I, I will acknowledge that there are many people who make claims for barriers to free movement, or you could say for citizenship, citizenship or whatever, and and within the libertarian movement. Do you see open borders as gaining traction in that regard? And what do you have to say about people who are, you could say? For firm enforcement of the law and, and, and basing the arguments within libertarianism. Well, I, I think there are libertarians that call for closed borders and I think their arguments are very fallacious. And, um, you know, I don't know what to make of them. I, I read their arguments and, and they try to couch them in terms of private property and they say that in a perfectly privately owned world, there wouldn't be any immigrants in. That's ridiculous. Because when immigrants come into the United States, they stay in private housing. They get a private apartments or private housing. They go to private employers. You don't see them sleeping out in public parks or in public streets and so forth. In fact, they're hiding from the authorities. But everything's done at the invitation of private individuals, both with respect to housing, consumption. I mean, do you notice that, as my friend Sheldon Richmond has pointed out, it's only mm-hmm. the government sector that complains about too many customers. <laughs> you know? Do you see right. Walmart saying, oh, we've got too many people coming in here and we got to get rid of these immigrants. <laughs> They're just bringing too much business. Right. And it's all private. So I really don't see where libertarians that call for closed borders have sound arguments. Gotcha. I, I hope that, that that understanding grows too because right now it is one of the issues of great dispute, but I hope that there comes to be a, a greater uh, understanding that open borders is the, the correct way to go. Now, we've only got a, a couple minutes to play with. Do you want to just give us a, a few thoughts on what the latest is with FFF and any sort of future developments that you're working on? Yeah, we just got back from a Southwest tour. We, we uh, gave some programs in Yuma, Arizona, and including on some of the issues we've talked about today, and then Phoenix, and then Dallas. And we've got 
FFF Daily, which is a free publication. We send it out every day. We try to make it the best libertarian uh, op-ed articles page on the Internet. And then we've got a monthly journal called The Future of Freedom. And uh, so we, we have uh, college tours. We go in and talk. One of our big uh, points of emphasis is this right now is civil liberties and the war on terrorism and foreign policy. Right. We consider the greatest threat to our freedom. Gotcha. Jacob, I want to say, yeah, we are against the break, but uh, thanks so much for coming on The Stateless Man. It's a pleasure to speak with you. Oh, you're welcome. It's an honor. I really enjoyed it. Thanks, Fergus. Excellent. Yeah, so uh, this is The Stateless Man, and it's been a pleasure. Come back next week, Monday, 12 to 2 on the on Eastern uh, Daily Time, Daylight Time, and I look forward to following you uh, through The Stateless Man Facebook page, facebook.com forward slash The Stateless Man. China's Great Wall to the Leaning Tower of Pisa. This is the Overseas Radio Network.